Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as, you know, the other thing. And we talk about it all. In this episode, we're going to discuss Isirian's Enchiridion of the West Marches. We have been on Chapter 3 for multiple episodes now, and I'm proud to say we're probably finishing tonight, this <laughs> <Probably>. chapter. <laughs> I like our chances. I'm a gambling man. I, I too, am betting that we're going to finish. Uh, we'll see if both of us leave the casino richer or poorer. Yeah, <laughs> with or without kneecaps. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, anyway, um, we've previously covered uh, a lot of stuff in Chapter 3, and we've talked about how this chapter is tend to get broken up a little bit more. Um, and we probably just need to go ahead and get out of the way that th- there is no amount of volume in this chapter that is going to leave us with anything other than, man, I wish there was a little bit more here. Yeah. Yep. That's just how it goes. Mm-hmm. That's that's page counts for you. Um, right. Isirian's Encouraging of the West Marches uh, is only 128 pages, including um, the blank final page. So, <laughs> yeah. That's how it's going to be. Um, but, you know, that's uh, our collective fault as D&D fans for not grossly overfunding this project so they had no choice but to make it a 256 page uh, behemoth right which you know i I didn't know about it while i was kickstarting so yeah i i did not just it's just collective guilt right yeah i i certainly would have uh have uh backed it had i known about it for sure yeah um and uh even though i didn't back it i did buy the hard cover from drive through rpg same uh and uh, and I do not regret that whatsoever. Not not one iota of me regrets it. So yeah, no, it's a it's a solid book. I liked it enough that uh, maybe forty eight hours after my copy arrived, I bought another copy and sent it to a friend really? as a surprise gift. Yeah, I've been recommending it all over. In fact, I just sent the link to somebody today, and uh, I also uh, I sent them. You know, there's a well. I, I so I, I sent them a little sample, right? Yeah. And uh, I, they were asking some questions about West March and stuff. And I sent them a little sample and I said, you know, uh, I'll buy you the PDF because I have some credit on drive through RPG if you want me. And then he was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to go get this thing right now. <laughs> right. That's how that's good. That's how excited he was about it. So he, so I, I've been uh, I've been uh, touting the, the benefits and the uh, virtues of this book for for a while now. Um, and will continue to do so, especially for for uh, and this person is not a fifth edition player either. It's a uh, one of my Castle Crusades buddies. So he is he is. So I'm I'm even crossing the streams, so to speak, uh, by recommending this book to others. So anyway, total protonic reversal. There you go. There you go. Could could lead to um, Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. But anyway, yeah. So dungeons. So dungeons. So um, there, there really is so much to say about dungeons that it's interesting to even find out what this book will try to say in the um, in the pages remaining in this chapter. 
the eight pages, eight and nine pages remaining in this chapter mm-hmm. to to try to cover dungeon creation. I mean, as we know from our tour through the DMGs, um, they tend to, to include some kind of dungeon creation chapter, and it was very often focused on um, sort of the, the most basic level of dungeon concept, dungeon map. Here's some stuff to help dungeon map making get a lot easier, that kind of thing. Yeah, so let's right. actually let's let's actually look at that section in the fifth edition DMG at the moment. It starts on page ninety nine, uh, and it's in the adventuring environments chapter, and it goes through and it gives us about six pages, and the information that is in here is um, a little bit similar to, but also complementary to what we're going to find in Iserions when we talk about it uh, in a second. And then there is a, a little uh, a, a little treatise on mapping and then some hazards. So there's about, uh, let's see, two, four, there's only about uh, six or seven pages minus, uh, minus some art. You might get six pages out of this. And then there's actually another section in the fifth edition DMG that is about actually uh, creating random dungeons, which starts on page 290. So in this book, it's split up uh, you know, into two different sections. Uh, the, 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 the creating random dungeons part of it is actually in the index, and yep. it provides a ton more tables to address the things that it talks about in that section on page uh, on page 99 or starting on page 99. So this is very complementary to what's happening in Iserians. And we're actually going to see later on uh, in Iserians, they actually do also have an appendix where they run through an example of using uh, the material in the first half of the book to actually create uh, some stuff. So it's very complementary. Um, but there are things in this book, in Iserians, that are not found in the fifth edition DMG. So that's what I mean when I say complementary. It's not, this yeah. is not a retread of what the fifth edition DMG says. This is a reframing of dungeons to fit into the West March's milieu. Right. And it focuses on how you hook the players how you telegraph danger and how you make the dungeon worthwhile in terms of not just loot that they get, but how they're, you know, part, part and parcel of the West Marsh's campaign is getting information because the only way that the, the party is going to survive, whatever party it is, whichever mission they're doing, the only way they're going to survive is if they get information first. So every dungeon should have along with loot as a treasure outcome, it should have information gained. And uh, that that whole thread of thought of how to deliver exposition is uh, uh, just incredibly important. It's uh, something that's underexplored in the tabletop space to me. Mm-hmm. Um, something I've been very conscious of as we go through um, the Tomb of the Nine Gods and Tomb of Annihilation, mm-hmm. because the Tomb of the Nine Gods does it very, very well. Right. If you're paying um, attention. If, if you're paying attention. Right. If you start glossing over stuff, um, 
And especially if the GM is, isn't willing to occasionally throw you some bones mm-hmm. and remind you what happened uh, a month ago, <laughs> it's much harder. Right. Uh, we've had a very merciful GM on that front, and I'm grateful to him. Um, but um, yeah, let's let's start in this chapter and go through it piece by piece. I think. Okay. Um, so we start with principles of dungeons and. Uh, you know, the section of the hook is fairly straightforward, but it's emphasizing that in the West Marches, uh, because it is a sandbox and everything might be interesting, you need to put neon signs over things, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, here's what's exciting about this. And it's not sort of, you want to make this the number one most exciting thing and this the number two most exciting thing. It's more sort of, um, non-comparative. Just hey, here here's a bunch of different things. Which of these excite you? Go do that. Right. Yeah. And remember the whole premise here, just for the audience. I know you remember, but for the audience, the premise is at the home base town there are multiple PCs, and whichever ones go on the trek for that game day is dependent on who wanted to go on what mission and what they wanted to go explore. And they won't know how to choose that and how to tell the DM that they're choosing that unless they get a lot of information. So they get rumors, they get stories, they uncover old lore and things they find as they're traveling around. And those PCs that found that stuff bring it back to the hometown and tell the other PCs, right? All the other, you know, certain pieces of information. Oh yeah. Well, we heard there's this great magical sword and it's in a old dungeon that is sunken into the ground in a, in an old forest. And so we're going to try to go look for that thing. Right. Um, yeah, it's, and, it's the master sword. Right. It, yeah. Yeah. And, and Link's going to want that. Right. Right. And now you go and you f- try to get more information about that. Oh, I heard about a dungeon in an old forest. Like it sank into the ground. Why did it sink into the ground? Is it really a swamp now? Or, you know, like what, what's the rumors around there and they're going to learn more information. And the whole point of it is the hook isn't just one line that you're telling your party, Hey, here's this hook. And you're expecting them to go on that adventure. That's not how the West marches works. Right. Right. And and honestly, the quest the, the, the text talks about quests. West marches might not be quest driven. Right. Not in the um, someone asks for your help and you deliver it way. It might more might be more here's a thing you could do. Right. Yeah, and it, there's not necessarily a patron, in other words, saying, hey, I know of right. an old spell scroll found in that dungeon where that sword supposedly is. Go get it for me, and you might get the sword at the same time. Nudge, nudge, yeah. wink, wink, right? Like, that. that's, right. that's not going to happen. The most right. that's going to happen there is some old halfling heard from their cousin whose best friend was an elf that was an apprentice to this old wizard. And they remember ta- them talking about one time, oh, yeah, there was a dungeon there and there were some valuable scrolls in it. But, you know, then it disappeared somehow and we don't know anything else about it. Right. And so there's going to be a mystery and there is something that might have existed and who knows. And there might be some scrolls or something. And who, right. But you're not going to get a straightforward, the wizard comes to you and says, oh, I'm too old and decrepit to go seek it out now. Why don't you go seek it out for me? That's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, doing things to improve amenities in 
the town uh, might be one of the biggest quest drivers out there of just, mm -hmm. hey, do you want me to be able to give you this thing in the future? Go get that thing over there. Right. Because like, it's such a clear part of the progression. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, if you if you need a sideline in how this all factors into Elden Ring, then we can do that. But Sam will not like me for it because I don't <laughs> believe he's played Elden Ring. I do not play Elden Ring. Um, but no, but you but you're right. So so one of the drivers is and and this is a driver that it, this is one of those interesting cases where West Marches can satisfy individual character desires as well as the entire group's desires, right? Because almost inevitably, when the group does something that ends up benefiting or enhancing the situation in town or at the home base, it's going to help everybody. It's not just going to yep. help that one PC, even though that one PC might get something over and above the generic general help that everybody else is getting as well. It's still not just helping that one PC. So I think that what they maybe don't cover here enough is how uh, players as their characters are going to develop particular topics of interest uh, so that you might get into a situation where thinking about my own campaign, like um, if we are engaging with this one uh, wizard villain, then my wife will want to play her fighter whose whole backstory is about hating that wizard villain. And if, she, if, we're, if we're doing stuff with the Fae, she's going to want to bring her Archfey Warlock. Mm -hmm. And that that's just how it's got to be. Right. And that's like, once some other players decide what they want to do, that really thumbs the scale of what she winds up playing. And so who's coming tonight winds up being this whole negotiation. Right. Not in a bad way, but more in a um, player motivation and character motivation are sort of this other nebulous area that factors in heavily to West March's play. Yeah. And they, you know, I think they try to address that okay. um, early on when they, not in this section, of course, but early on when they're just laying out the premise for the missions and the, um, and the, the, you know, the, the character roster and, and all of that, you know, because uh, it says, um, it says uh, on page 12, it says missions. At an ordinary table, players come together each week to play. What they do during that session is variable without specific structure beyond game mechanics. In the West Marches, this is a bit different. Each session comprises one mission, which is a specific objective the player characters set out to achieve. Each mission begins with the party leaving town. What's not in there but is I think earlier is that um, oh here's what it, it's it's on page ten where it talks about mission parties and the players yeah. you know the character roster and the players uh, you know how and why mission parties are formed is wholly up to the players that's that's where it talks about that um, and then I think unfortunately they kind of ignore that <laughs> as they do the rest of the chapters. Yeah. Right. They set it out as a premise, but it's not something that they revisit. Several things in here they keep revisiting, like telegraphing danger and information, but some things they kind of just say, well, that's that's the premise that we're laying out and we're not going to talk about it again. 
Yeah. And I don't really feel it's that significantly underserved. Mm -hmm. It's just, um, it becomes another aspect of hook setting to me. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, Right. Like, I don't know. Um, it, it means I want a certain variety of hooks out in the world. And if there's some new blank hexes opening up that I haven't done anything with, I might skew toward previously underserved player interests. Right. Or if all the players are super interested in this kind of thing and I'm putting in new content that wasn't developed before, I might skew toward the thing that everyone cares about because I'm only human and getting a positive response from people is normal as a thing to want. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That is a very valid desire. Excited players are good players. That's a great thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Yes. No, of course not. So, yeah. Um, So then the next little section is about uh, what I mentioned a second ago, which is telegraphing danger and telegraphing information to to the party as they're traveling and and before they're traveling, right, before they have uh, traveled, they should have some knowledge of how dangerous this this dungeon, because this specifically is about dungeons, so how dangerous this dungeon is is expected to be. And um, when they, what this also addresses is when they first stumble across a location, a dungeon or a tomb or a crypt or an old decrepit castle or whatever the location may be, we're, we're just generically calling them dungeons. Um, when they first stumble across that, they should pretty quickly be able to figure out whether they can handle that dungeon or not. Right. And so one of the bits of advice it gives is that um, the, the, the first thing that you should do, the first encounter in any sort of new dungeon that they don't really know anything about uh, should be something they can easily retreat from because if they determine they're in over their heads, they at least have an out and then they know, Oh, geez, there is an iron golem guarding that entrance to that thing. And we can't handle that yet. So we powerful, slow moving defenders are right. Uh, the most amazing, uh, sort of gate guardians for that. Exactly. And so now they can, when they, now that they can finish whatever current mission they're on, that they accidentally stumbled across this place, they put a little dot on their, you know, on their paper to remind them, oh yeah, we found this old ruin or whatever. And then when they go back to town, they tell everybody, hey, we found, not everybody in town, but everybody in the, in the player roster, yeah. right, in the PC roster, hey, we found an entrance to a new thing. How about you try to find out about it, and then eventually we'll get to go there. But right now, I don't think we can because this thing is a big old whatever creature that's really hard, and we had to run away. Yeah, and you know that really signifies one of the big differences between uh, West Marches and other campaigns. Mm-hmm. I think in a lot of campaigns, if the PCs spent time going out to the dungeon, uh, fought the, you know. Fought the bouncer at the front door and (laughs) got bounced, then went home empty-handed. They'd be like, "Why did I even come tonight? Right? What the hell?" Well, so what's funny is they actually address that later. That particular 
point is addressed later. Right. This, and in this like, case, in this case, it's about when they stumble across something they hadn't heard of before, not when they're on a mission to go to that place. Fair enough. Now, I, I just think like this being West Marches, you need to go in with the mindset that, okay, we got bounced, but we learned something. Absolutely. Right. Yes, for sure. And, and also, um, my personal takeaway is to get rid of XP being about monsters stabbed. And mm-hmm. so like you learned something, here's your XP. Congratulations. Right. Like, okay, maybe you're out the cost of like staging that, that expedition. Cause you, you paid for rations, you paid for, I don't know, gear that got damaged, whatever, mm-hmm. but you know, you, you came home without new treasure on the other hand, you came up with with information, comma space, which is better than money, right? Uh, so, like, what it it really like that might be a really short session. Maybe that session winds up being like an hour and a half because they, they get out there and you know their whole plan was to go find out what that place was. What's its deal? Oh, its deal is. We're not tall enough for this ride. Right. That just needs to be okay. And so I don't know. Um, maybe there's maybe there are some more techniques that DMs can use to I don't know, improve morale after a bad beat like mm-hmm. that. Right. Like, first of all, try to make it not a bad beat. Like the point of the bouncer is in fact to let people get away once they've done been bounced. Right. Um, right. The well, Iron Golem doesn't give chase. Yeah. And, and it actually says, you know, a dungeon should telegraph its danger early. Right. right. And so before the dungeon begins, right, before the party even goes in, really, is when they need to already know more. And that's why my good friend Brandis here keeps saying that the knowledge is actually worth XP because that knowledge is valuable. It's worth more than loot at this point. And it's worth more than the tiny bit of hurt pride that that party has because they had to retreat from whatever that creature was or whatever the guardian was. Right. Yeah. And and I think they're just like, you want to get your, your player community really focused on building esprit de corps after you know, they have to retreat. Mm-hmm. Now, I do want to add one more wrinkle to this, which is I think there's a really cool dungeon possibility if you can develop the right kind of language with your players where the trick of the dungeon is getting the bouncer to leave, not beating the bouncer in a fight. Whether that's someone lures the, the the bouncer away by you know firing arrows at them until they give chase the rest of the party slips in and the the one who lured them away tries to give the bouncer a slip and get in mm-hmm. um, and so it, it turns out yeah the rest of the dungeon wasn't murderously difficult or maybe the whole dungeon is murderously difficult and we just have pulled off something really cool in a place that's over leveled for us mm-hmm. so the treasure we're getting is awesome right right but we're gonna have a hard time getting out because the guardian's gonna be back right (laughs) you're gonna need extra strategy yeah also they they actually um, they they address uh the the 
sort of the th- basically what they say is don't trap the party in a dungeon. If well, you trap th- th- them in a dungeon, they say, without they say a way it's to dangerous. Escape, right. Not, don't well, do it. <laughs> right. That's true. But here's my thing is what you're describing is the party is doing something really cool and they're learning something about it. And if they get in and they find out, oh yeah, maybe this whole dungeon is a problem for us. When they go back to leave, they already know that they can't defeat that guardian in straight direct combat. So now they have to devise another plan. That entire thing is a really cool, fun mission, right? And maybe they can scout the first three rooms or the first three passageways in that dungeon. That's what they're getting is they're getting that information. And then they have to find a way to sneak out and survive. And then they get back. And that's really cool. Their point in the book is don't, uh, don't make it so that they can't retreat. And then they end up expending almost all their resources to defeat the guardian. And then they go in and they get their butts handed to them again. And then you make it so they can't retreat again. Right. right? They're saying, don't do that. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty fair. Um, And Basically, what you and I have just done is meld these two sections together, the telegraphing sure. and the information learned, because it all is very similar, right? Right. And what a lot of the rest of this chapter is going to get into is just what does it mean, uh, th- this rest of this chapter and the next chapter following it, what is lore? What does it mean to learn about a dungeon? Mm-hmm. And how can you build an interesting lore base into what you show and what you like push. Right. Uh, so, uh, so, so yeah, they're talking about how dungeons convey knowledge. Um, if, if the players complete a dungeon and there is absolutely no new insight to be gleaned, they will feel cheated. And, Getting players to care about lore is a culture thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I am very fortunate in the, the player culture that I'm engaged with that uh, the great majority of the players are invested in lore to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. Right. They and give, they give a hint later about how to, uh, how, how to make it so that it's more likely that the, uh, that the players will care about the lore. <laughs> they give a, they give a they give a tip for that on the very last page of this. It's one of those uh, sidebars that may or may not apply to everybody. So they, um, but yeah, right. you're right. I think it is a there is a wide variability in the types of players that are out there, and unfortunately, the vast majority of them they might be a little bit interested in the lore, but how long are they going to be interested in the lore and well, are they and going to be consistently interested in it or are they going to be at every session? Uh, you know, like yeah. those sorts of questions make it very inconsistent. Well, I, I think that, that, uh, that uh, red sidebar you just referred to mm-hmm. uh, attach history to things players care about mm-hmm. in terms of just getting players to engage with the lore is such a killer app. Oh my mm-hmm. goodness. Yeah. So uh, this is something that, Colin and I stumbled onto as just an incredibly powerful tool when we were creating Dust to Dust. And it's something the rest of the Dust to Dust staffers uh, really helped us further. So 
I'm not trying to like, take more than my share of the credit for implementing this, but mm-hmm. we, we got to talking about named weapons. And so in Dust to Dust, weapons and armors and shields could earn the right of a name. What that meant was that the both that players could find a weapon that already had a name and learn its name and learn the cool thing it got because it was worthy of a name and it received the, the magic of a name. Um, or they could do cool enough stuff with their own gear that it earned the right of a name. Hmm. Uh, but when you find lore, when you find a, a sword that already has a name and you make it the thing you wield, its story is now your story and your story is, is now it's like the, your stories are joined forever. And so you suddenly care a little bit about its previous wielders. So if let's say um, you have um, this really cool sword named dead moon and you've been wielding it for a while and it's great. And then you like find some frescoes on a wall in a dungeon and the sword on that fresco can only be dead moon. I mean, there's just no, like mm-hmm. it, all the markings are the same. Well, well, heck like I care now because everything cool about this dungeon makes me cooler. Right. Because it's part of the sword story and it's part of my story. And that was what we realized. And so that sense of legacy uh, and connection became a really big part of how we got players interested in lore. Right. Um, Similarly, if you discovered a new spell, that spell was going to show up in other places in the setting and that would, it would matter. Right. Or you would read about a spell. Well, that's now a spell you can gain. I mean, that's, that's classic D and D stuff that goes way back. That's, you know, we, we got it from watching you Vance. We got it from watching you, but (laughs) it works. It works. It it works at charm every time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's why I'm so invested in spells as narrative objects. Right. Um, if you ever hear me go on about that at uh, extraordinary and obnoxious length, that's why I care. <laughs> it's because it makes the whole lore game tick right? really, really well. Well, that's why uh, I like uh, spell components and rituals. For sure. Because those sure. are elements of spell casting and, and of performing rites and ceremonies that can really, really enrich a lore in any setting. While we're here, I guess I need to say that that was one of the things I found made it hardest for me to engage with fourth edition D and mm-hmm. um, The NPCs weren't casting the same spells that PCs were casting and often finding even a close cognate was going to be unreasonably difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and so seeing an NPC do a cool thing didn't mean my PC could ever learn to do the cool thing. And the NPCs I met in the world weren't like me. They were never going to be like me. Um, 
I had nothing to learn from them. And like finding a a journal or whatever might teach me a ritual, maybe. Mm-hmm. But that was that only worked for a few classes and um it wasn't sort of the primary character action. It was very much sort of downtime character action for the most part with rituals. So I, that just really left me cold. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I, I personally don't have a problem with uh, NPCs and creatures working differently than, than so, PCs, but spells right. are known objects in the world. That, yep. Right. So, so NPCs work differently than PCs is not the same thing as right. Well, fi- fireball doesn't mean fireball. Right. Right. And that's where I was going. Was I don't have a cognitive issue with things working different mechanically, but when you're talking about the lore of a world and of a setting that includes certain types of elements like spells or weapons or certain types of effects or ceremonies or rituals, those things should have consistency, right? Otherwise, I mean, in so much as, okay, a necromancer creates a new necromantic spell, um, you might not have known that thing existed before. So in that way, it's different from what your PC knew. However, that spell now is in the setting and it's in the setting. So now it should be able to be utilized by anyone who can learn the spell and has the components and has the ability to, right? So I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. I also have an issue with that part of it. And speaking of, this is actually one of the issues for fourth edition. For me, it's kind of tangential but and separate, but similar because we're talking about this section of the book. This thing about telegraphing danger. One of the problems that I had with fourth edition, uh, just me personally, was that it's so reliant on the map and the minis or Mm -hmm. tokens, or even if it's just a drawn map or whatever, right? That, and I probably would have had this problem in late third edition too, because third edition, uh, you know, contrary to popular belief, third edition assumed maps and minis for battles as well. Okay, let's just get that out out there. I'm not sure there's a ton of popular belief to the contrary, but. Uh, Well. uh, We don't need to have that fight. It's fine. You know, I, I think there were a lot of third edition players who bemoaned the fact that fourth edition required it and based the powers around it, whereas yeah. third edition uh, <laughs> merely made did, the game very difficult to play any other way. Third edition did a soft require, and all the things that characters could do weren't reliant on it, right? So they they poked at that as a problem. Anyway, here's my problem with it, right? It's not even about that third edition thing. It's this. Telegraphing danger means that the DM is providing information to the party about what the PCs are experiencing, right? So what they see, what they're hearing, uh, what they, you know, how the air feels, right? Not necessarily mental, emotional feelings, but just like you smell this, you hear this, you feel the air is cold and clammy or dry and musty or whatever, right? Those sorts of things. And here's what you see in your limited view of this room. It's really easy to stop doing that so well when everybody's looking at the freaking map and placing the minis on it, right? Yep. So I have a 
of a big dungeon crawl coming up in my campaign. Mm-hmm. The PCs have let me know they want to go to one of the only mega dungeons they actually know about in the whole setting. Okay. And they're going to try to clear the second level. They've been in there a couple times before. They've cleared the first level. Um, and they've, in two prior visits, it's a total of about three or four sessions, they cleared maybe a third of the second level. So okay. I, we'll see where they get on, on this dungeon run. I'm very your, excited. Your dungeons don't restock, or they do, or is it the type of dungeon uh, that... Uh, there's going to be some restocking. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, like uh, I, I haven't like written out everything that's there yet. That's mm-hmm. that's prep myself to do, but I'm hoping I can get myself to build a bunch of it with my dwarven forge tiles, mm-hmm. so that I cover the whole thing with a cloth and reveal it a piece at a time. Mm-hmm. I think that'll be really cool for however much I can manage. Right now. The level is bigger than the whole of my Dwarven Forge, but you know, <laughs> right? What can you do? If I yeah. have to shift over to tactiles mid session, you know, we'll live. Mm-hmm. Um, but my my point here is just um, I'm really interested in keeping a focus on description on um, like keeping the players mentally engaged mm-hmm. with both the the sensory experience and the problem solving experience right right as we explore mm-hmm. um, so like the, the thing about you know eyes on the map is a challenge i'm very conscious of right and so my recommendation to you is tell them what they see and smell in here yeah. before you remove and reveal the next room. That's fair. Right. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. Because if you don't reveal, if you reveal it, they're not listening to you. They're looking at the thing. Sure. Right. Sure. And it, even if you're really good still at giving those clues and telegraphing, they're looking at the thing and they're half hearing you. Whereas yep. if you leave it covered and you tell them they're looking at you and listening and thinking about, okay, well, you know, this thing might be there. Okay. We, we might want to, you know, whatever, we might want to make sure we take care of that or whatever. And then you reveal, and now they can ask questions about, oh, is this what you described as blah, blah, blah. And is that that thing over here? Is that what you were talking about? And then they're engaging with what you said and putting it onto the map. But it's it's so hard. It's so I'm, I'm hard. Not, well, I'm also not sure how much I'm going to be able to do proper chamber by chamber mm-hmm. reveals. That's that's an open question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is certainly a place where drawing on my tactiles works a lot better. Right. Because yeah. I don't have to worry about you know the nuances of cloth getting pulled back. Anyway, we should really get on with this chapter. I felt. But yeah, that's why well, I'm ex- I'm interested to hear about your experiences with that because I think that is definitely a a part of gaming that and you know the same thing happens actually. This is still on topic. The same thing happens to me using VTTs, right? Sure. Because For now sure. nowadays you can buy such a nice, well developed, really nicely illustrated map, but then that's all your players are looking at. Yep. Right. And they're not, um, you know. 
they're not really engaged with what you're telling them if you reveal it too soon. And then with things like D20 uh, with the uh, roll 20, like if you've got dynamic lighting on and they move their token in because they say I'm walking into this room, well, it reveals it to them before you can yeah. say anything, you know? Yeah. So that's actually a, a really nice thing that our GM is handling well into of annihilation, right? Um, he's got all of the Tomb of the Nine Gods maps, I mean, all the maps for the whole campaign, uh, loaded into GIMP. Okay. Um, and he's just sharing his screen with us. So he, he blacks out everything that we can't see and then erases the black layer mm-hmm. for you know, as we explore. Right, right. Now, you know, there's a certain amount of he erases a bit, we see what it says, and we ask about it, but he is also perfectly capable of reading the text from the adventure and adding mm. more description. Right. And right. I don't know, he's doing a really bang up job, which is why I've been so gung ho about dungeons, mm-hmm. uh, both in this show and in Twitter yeah. for the last, uh, boy, I've been in the Tomb of the Nine Gods for a long time. Um, <laughs> long time now. Yeah. That's still my favorite adventure from fifth edition. It's it still, it's it amazing. Really, really well done. Um, but you know, that's to be fair, roll 20 has it so that you can actually set it so that the players, that the, the DM uh, moves all the tokens, the players don't move the tokens. So you can actually not do, you can make it so that it doesn't happen the way I described it. But as most people just have the players able to control their own tokens for sure. And during combat, you definitely want players moving their tokens. Mm -hmm. It's just a pain in the butt. If the DM has to move them all during combat. Right. Right. So, um, anyway, <laughs> anyway, so so types of dungeons. Gee, we never go off on a tangent. How that happened? Lord, <laughs> um, it, we're an hour into the episode and we've covered less One than page. a full page. <laughs> a page with a large art bar at the top. Cool. Yeah. Uh, typical, typical edition wars. It's true. All right, so types of dungeons. Um, this is a table that. Um, it's a D20 table of dungeon types. Uh, I think it is technically not copied from the DMG, but I have to keep checking because I could be wrong. It, uh, I don't think it is. It's very similar, but I don't think it's, it's very similar. Let me check that page 99 again. That, that, that planar gate thing at the as the uh, 20 roll really made right me think, that. wait, do I know this one from? So let's, uh, yeah, so dungeon type. I, I think that's the dungeon purpose table um, in chapter five, isn't it? Oh, you know, you might. Or be right. so I close to it. I that... looking at chapter. Uh, so the dungeon purpose table has this death trap, lair, maze, mine, and planar gate. Okay, so that Strong, yeah. stronghold, temple, uh-huh. or shrine, tomb, and treasure vault. Yeah, I so, see it. So, yeah, so it's they, similar, but similar, not identical. But, yeah. Um, and I think that's how they did most of the tables uh, in this particular part of the chapter right. here. Um, and, you know, just, hey, the DMG has a pretty good table. What if it had um, 10 more entries? Right. It's a pretty valid lifestyle yeah. choice. A forge, a palace, a laboratory, you know, yeah, sewers. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. It's a nice little table. Um, but you're right. I saw that planar gate and I was like, oh, that came out of the DMG. <laughs> Yeah, I did. I wasn't thinking the whole table did. I just knew that that particular suggestion came out because I think we yep. talked about it when we looked at that. Chapter. Yeah, we did five minutes on it um, <laughs> in this chapter. I think that would have been with uh, Eugenio. 
Yohinio. You're right. Victory is mine. <laughs> uh, mostly because we got Yohinio as a guest. That's why victory is mine. Yeah, exactly. That he was, was great. That was great. Yeah. He was super fun. Um, right, okay, so, so. <laughs> so that leads us into like the, the discussion of types of dungeons. The, the, their paragraphs on that are a little boilerplate to me. Like, yeah. it's fine. It's like that's not even a criticism. You have to introduce ideas. They introduce the idea. Here's the table that is the important part of the section. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're, they're, here's the most important sentence. Often the best starting place in designing a dungeon is to consider the dungeon's original purpose, which may still be its current purpose. That's it. And now you have the table. So the, the way this factors into the very next section is actually the step that is the killer to me. That Like, it, it really makes it sing, I'm trying to say. So mm-hmm. I, I actually want to jump straight into talking about layers of dungeon history. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so going back to my love of talking about video games when we do dungeons. Um, so Hollow Knight is a game where you get to see the whole world in a 2D side view map. And you go through all these different you know, environments that have different purposes. There are nests, there's a city, there's a, a graveyard, there's all of this different stuff. Mm-hmm. And so what that is in simple terms is dungeon types stacked on top of each other and connected in close proximity well, that's what layered exploration means, mm-hmm. right? That, that's one of the subheaders here in a very important sense. Like you, you create that sense of history in the same way that you know, Ankh-Morpork is chiefly built on other layers of Ankh-Morpork in uh, mm-hmm. Sir Terry's Discworld. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same, of course, being true of London, which he was referencing, and Rome. And so on, like uh, the purposes of a space change, uh, but also people just build straight on top of you know the thing that was there before. Um, and so, like having players descend through history is very much, I think, the sense that you want. Um, and you know, when I look at both some some classic uh, 2D side view um, sort of summary maps of dungeons. I'm sure you know the kind I'm talking about, Sam. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, side scrollers. Yep. Those side scroller maps uh, use uh, the ones for D&D and the ones for, you know, Castlevania, Metroid, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those map types, like when you, when you get to look at all of them together. There was a Mistara side scroller too. Yep, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> That's a deep cut, <laughs> for, for sure. I uh, I've heard of it, never played it. Um, I, I think those uh, really speak to the imagination because it winds up tapping into the sequential art part of our brains in a really pleasing way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're seeing this history as a kind of sequential art, except that it's not. Like you're you're seeing the passage of years, but in a single frame, right. and that's very inspiring in a very like exciting way. Um, 
that's kind of the, the reaction I've gotten from drawing that type of side view map. Like I'm just barely starting to do a little bit of dungeon cartography in inside view maps and yeah. I get a very positive response because it just plays with the brain really well. And, you know, even games that aren't really dungeon based or like fantasy based, well, fantasy based, like D and D based something like uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. Sure. Right? Yep. Complete side. I mean, the, the originals, right? I don't know about recent ones, but side scroller, you're jumping to get coins, whatever, but the, the intricacies of the different layers that are in there, but you're still on a side view and you can actually draw out that entire map yep. in one long linear depiction. And you go through all different types of terrain and all different time types of different uh, elements. And there's a water section and an, uh, in the hill section and a flying section and a, you know, past section and the, you know, all that kind of stuff, a future section and all of that, all just side scrolled. Yeah, and uh, um, Super Mario Brothers 2 is a real classic mm-hmm. for this, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Uh, this is, by the way, now just a video game podcast. <laughs> uh. No, you know what I think is the issue is that this chapter is about dungeons, but it's not about how to create a dungeon. Right. It's about right. how to talk about a dungeon how to talk about a dungeon and how to telegraph things and how to think about a dungeon within the framework of a west marches campaign and of course as people who run games and design games you and i get deep into the also the designing part of the dungeon and that's not what this chapter is well that's why i said to you earlier in all fairness Mm -hmm. the chapter is called world building this is the world building of the dungeon yes not the map building yeah i i get it but that's why that's why i put that little disclaimer in there that as a designer and an active dm i immediately when i think of dungeons i want to attach this right to a dungeon creation and so my mind immediately goes to dungeon creation and they start with a slight tiniest morsel of dungeon creation in terms of the type. And then they move on to the narrative aspects and the framing aspects of it and don't actually talk about how to create the dungeon. And, but my mind still goes there. Right. And that's why we're off on this big tangent. (laughs) For sure. And I I just feel like um, they want to really emphasize saying the thing that you can't get anywhere else because there is stuff here mm-hmm. that just doesn't get enough coverage in other places. Right. This is the stuff that matters for West Marches. Mm-hmm. Right. The, that how to build a dungeon. Well, we did the page count in the DMG on that. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. There, yeah. there's never going to be enough pages. That's not right. how it works. Right. Right. And so the key here is to take this chapter, this part of this chapter and to apply, to read it and apply what it's saying to yourself when you go back to the dmg or to uh engineering dungeons which is a great product by trollord games uh, by uh, robert doyle that, that talks about how to create dungeons or when you go to your tome of adventure design and you're trying to create it or whatever whatever your dungeon creation tool is the job here of this book is we're telling you what to think about as your doing that dungeon as you're creating that dungeon here's what you should also be thinking about so that when you get done creating that dungeon it's going to serve your west marches game really well 
And before before this episode, before we started recording, I said to my good friend Brandis that this is a slightly disappointing chapter for me in this book. And I explained to him that the problem isn't actually that the chap- that this portion of the chapter is disappointing. It's not. It's that the bar is set so high in the other parts of this yeah. book that it's really easy to fall off and below that bar, right? And this is through this conversation. This is why I said I was a little disappointed because I also want dungeon creation advice that takes into account some of the West March's style. And they don't give me that. And that's the only reason it's disappointing. It's not because what's here isn't good. It's because of what they left out. But as we have already said, I'm not blaming them. You know, you can only put so many words in a 200-page book or 128-page book, right? So that's just my own, you know, this is the same sort of thing I said about every chapter of the DMG too, right? I just want more. And, you know, you said at the beginning of this episode. So, yeah. It's it's how we do. Yeah, it's how Um, we do. so layered exploration. You, you, so so, so yeah, the so, yeah. right. So so layered exploration. Um, like it, it's absolutely talking about this dungeon has history. You're here to learn this history. Now, you know, I I do think that what you really need to like, just survive the pre-production of a West March's game is a really really good. Uh, rapid dungeon builder, and I say that because reading this section, it seems to genuinely expect you to have uh, multiple multi-level dungeons just ready to go. Yeah, like, you know the, the players tell you they're going there, yeah, and then they go there, and all you do is run it, and folks, that's a tall order. <laughs> Right. Well, here's what's funny is, so two things about that. First, I'll remind you that in the beginning of the book, it said running a West Marches game is not easy. It's not for the lazy DM type of kind of thing. No, no offense to the lazy DM way, but it's not really for that because you have to plan it all first and you have to know it well enough that you can ad lib while they're while they're exploring something so that you can add some of that lore and all that stuff. And the second thing I want to say about this is what's really funny about what you're saying is um, when you go to the appendix, they give you the step-by-step example of how to do uh, uh, certain elements of this book. And the dungeon example they give you only has six and a half rooms in it. So, you're talking about the way that it sounds in here is they want you to make a sprawling dungeon complex, but even their own example only has 11 keyed location, including the entrance to the dungeon, the camp right to the side of it, and the seven rooms inside. Yep. So uh, while I get what you're saying, their own example doesn't bear out that. And here's the thing. I don't know if this example is this small because they just didn't have room or because they're trying to say, Hey, look, it doesn't have to be a sprawling five level, right. Slightly mega dungeony type of complex for every time that you do this. Right. Right. But it sure does make it seem like it when you read about all this layered history and everything. Right. Cause you, 
you got to be thinking to, I mean, what I was reading and I was thinking to myself, well, yeah, and you're not just going to walk in the front door and in the first chamber, you're going to get access to all this lore and history. Like you sure. got to be searching this thing and you got to be down in the lower levels that hardly anybody's ever been in for a millennium. Right. Yep. To get that lore. So yeah, I, I yeah, I, I'm of mixed feelings about that. I kind of agree with you and I kind of think that, but then they give us an example that's not that way. And I, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, so they also talk about mechanical layers, um, and it's very much about like as they go deeper, it gets harder. Mm-hmm. That's just straight up a rule in original D and D and first ed. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not quite not a rule in second, and then sort of open to discussion thereafter as third and fourth don't talk about mega dungeon play in as a default state right mm-hmm. and that way of thinking about dungeon levels is very much a like mega dungeon as default state moment yeah i mean I, yeah so you know in the in the early editions you know level 1 Remember, we talked about this when we talked about uh, gaining XP. But yep. in if you go to level one and all, and you're level one, any creature that you fight there, you get equal experience for it because right. you're on level one, and that means that the the fights there, in general, on average, or maybe I should say the median fight that you're going to get there is going to be of your same level. You might rarely get something slightly higher. Okay, when you get to the second level of the dungeon that's meant for level two PCs, right? So if you're level two PC, you're going to get equal XP. If you're level one, you're going to actually get more XP from those encounters. But if you're level three, you're going to get less XP for those encounters because by the name of the level, you're actually fighting things that are less powerful than you. Right. And that's expected. So you don't get as much value out of that. You don't get experience in the same way that somebody who is equal to that challenge would get experience. You go down to the third level and now that third level PC is getting equal experience, but the second level PC who hasn't leveled up yet is getting more experience per encounter. Right. And it's meant to be that the, the level of the dungeon is equal to, you know, should be equal to basically the average party level. And that's what's telling you that it's, you're going to find basically even challenge, right? Right. Now that doesn't mean you can do 12 battles in a row and still survive it, but it means that the e- it's an even challenge. Any individual combat is probably going to be successful for the party. Yep. And that's that's the same kind of idea that is drug over into here except without the whole giving different experience amounts and everything. But that was a real thing in early D&D. Um so Danger level on the very next page mm-hmm. is going to delve into this idea still further. Right. Um, you know, this has a baseline difficulty header, essentially clarifying that dungeon level one is not for character level one. Mm-hmm. Right. Dungeon level one is for uh, surrounding countryside level X plus a level or two, maybe, maybe more. In difficulty, uh, probably the, the dungeon is probably more dangerous than the wilds. Right. right. Um, so it's just sort of 
uh, a concentration of threat. Right. Right. Which is, it's, it's when you think about uh, old D and D and, and like basic D and D that's actually the opposite of the way it used to be done because it used to be that levels one to three, you would go into a basic dungeon and earn your levels and you didn't get the wilderness traveling rules until you hit level three and you went to the expert box set, right 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 so because the wilderness traveling it can be much more dangerous because you're out in the wilderness for longer period of time right and so this kind yeah. of turns that upside down and says well the region is dangerous yes uh, the entirety of the west marches is dangerous don't get us wrong but the region is danger has like danger a danger level x the dungeon though is most of the time, like 99% of the time, going to be harder in terms of challenge level than the surrounding region. So the dungeon is, is you know, challenge level Y, and the region is challenge level X. And normally the region is basically at the level of the PCs. So they're not going to just stumble across a dungeon that they can overcome if they're in an area that is equal to their challenge. Um, and then it also specifies that um, on a given level, threat is pretty steady. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, see, that said, like regions, dungeons, dungeons should maintain the same level of difficulty across the encounters. Some can be considered medium difficulty and some hard difficulty, but overall, the encounter should be appropriate across a single level of challenge. To do otherwise will, as with other areas of the game, unfairly unfairly kill the players or make them far too skittish, which is just to say, once they have understood the level of difficulty they're committing to, rug pulls are bad form. Right, right. And and it, it actually explains later, right, that they're not talking about always giving the PCs a fair fight because the the choices right. for the PCs, the PCs have to make choices. And remember your job, not you, Brandis, but you, yeah. the audience and the DM, your job as the DM is to give them enough information so that they can make a decision. Now, if they decide to keep going, even though they haven't taken a short rest or a long rest in a really long time, and they've expended almost all their resources and it's really, really late, they still want to keep going and they have all the information that you've given them, and then they TPK, well, that's on them because you gave them the information. You didn't do it unfairly, and that challenge wasn't outsized. It wasn't a rug pull. It was just they chose to kept going even though they had all the information. For sure. They're saying that's okay. I mean, I mean, okay, quote, okay, right? It's okay because the players made that choice, right? That was their own agency that took them that far. Right. In other words, the fights don't necessarily get easier as they keep going, but every fight is, you know, and they talk about in the next section, right? Attrition is a real thing. Even at its heart, even fifth edition is a game of resource management in some ways. And sometimes the resource is hit points, and sometimes the resource is food and water and rations, and sometimes the resource is time, right? And so right, and sometimes the resource is distance, the distance that you can travel. And so like all of those things become really important and the players have to manage those. And it's only fair to let them manage it. And if they make a poor decision, they make a poor decision. It's only fair if you gave them accurate information. Your job is not to lie to them. Your job is to give them the information that they seek as long as they seek it from the right place and they're listening. 
I, I just know that some people are going to read some of these sections and especially some of my old school friends, and they're going to say, ah, you know, this book was great. And then it started talking about balancing and challenge level and all that. And I want to talk to those people for a second, all right? because really what this book is saying is it's putting the same ideas of that old school mentality. It's just putting it in modern fifth edition language for them for the fifth edition players and for new players, because all it's saying is not every challenge is winnable and that's okay. As long as the DM has given the players that information, and then it's the players that are choosing that. And that's it. And that's very old school. It's just written in a different form. And sometimes it sounds like, you know, they hedge. In fact, there's a sidebar in here that says, you know, talking about the bosses we're going to get to in a couple pages, maybe if we get to a couple pages <laughs> in this episode. Uh, but basically it says, you know, uh, it's okay to make the boss, you know, not kick butt. Um, so we'll get to that. But I just know what some of my OSR friends are going to say about that. They're going to say, ah, you know, this, this whole balance thing, that was the thing that caused the downfall of D&D in the first place. And I'm here to tell you, that's not what this book is saying. It's not saying balance everything. It's saying things should be telegraphed and it shouldn't be unexpected. So you can't have a level 10 creature in the middle of a dungeon floor, that dungeon level, where everything else you've told the players and faced the players with has been levels one to three. You just can't do it because it's not fair, unless they have looked at murals in seven different rooms and saw a depiction of a big giant, whatever that creature is, in the middle of a dungeon, and they've ignored your telegraphing information. Then you can do it, but you right. can't do it by unfairly pulling the rug out. And I think the OSR people will agree with that. What what I would say to this is that I would absolutely love to read, you know, a, a chapter length article just on how to telegraph danger in indirect ways that establish a language with the players. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. You can definitely do things like, hey, we're pretty sure that the, the, the boss monster just came through here and boy, he absolutely ate the lunch of these monsters that, that have been, you know, an equal challenge <laughs> right. for us. Mm -hmm. I bet it's a problem. Right. Or right. maybe you discover, yep, the boss came through here. Sure. He killed a bunch of the monsters that are a problem for us, but boys love his blood on this floor too. I think we got him guys. Right. Yeah. He right. might be, he might be damaged. Now's when we go after him. Yeah. Right. And like, I don't know. I think a lot of time in a game like this, the boss would be fairly stationary and not be discovered in a weakened state. But mm -hmm. I hope that the authors of this book would agree with me that uh, the needs of a living world uh, take precedence over sort of the boss as a predictable entity. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, so we'll, the dungeon bosses gets a whole like page. Sure. We should really get there someday. Um, just recently I was playing in tomb of annihilation and we have just finished exploring or we think we're finished exploring. You never really know how much map you're not seeing. Right. 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 Uh, we think we're finished exploring the second level of the tomb of the nine gods. Okay. And we got to the, uh, all access backstage pass area 
of the Tomb of the Nine Gods, mm-hmm. right? So um, my character, when we hit eighth level, got Dungeon Delver. And so my passive perception for spotting secret doors specifically is 19, which wow. is just abusive. Yeah. It's not the highest you can get in the game, but it's real strong. <laughs> and so I'm just casually walking through rooms, like picking up all the secret doors. And in a sense, this removes the tension, but there's so much other tension in every room of the dungeon that it does not matter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We need some easy wins because every <laughs> other win is so hard. Um, but it was so exciting to find this backstage area where the description of each room, the uh, the way, everything down to the way the doors were structured uh, was telegraphing information about this is a lower risk area. The NPCs don't expect you to be here. There aren't death traps here. Mm-hmm. You may still mm-hmm. get in a fight and that's fine, but it's not <laughs> like an adamantium fan blade that is going to just bisect you for having the, the temerity to fail a save against fear, mm-hmm. which happened to me uh, two weeks earlier. Right. <laughs> right. That, that was a bad time. Yeah. Um, sorry. Spoilers. I guess it's not uh, the like accidentally shifting you from the production server to the test server of the dungeon. Oh my <laughs> God. That was really scary. So did, did you meet uh, someone? So we did meet someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we met uh, Withers. <laughs> Excellent. I love it was him. an amazing encounter. <laughs> he was very chatty. And then he said, I'm sorry, I have to kill you now. And I said, I'm sorry, I have to stun you now. And that went exactly one way because he failed to save. And that's on him. Oh, ouch. Uh, yes. Poor Withers. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he was the one who as much as said, this is ceased to be a role playing encounter. And we said, right. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I, in my, in my game, when I ran it a couple of years ago now, um, my party had, they, they got a little audacious and they decided uh, that they were going to um, rest in the middle of the dungeon. And so they yeah. did like a, a, a tiny hut. Right. Um, and so I let them do it. Uh, <laughs> um, and they didn't get any rest though, because, um, at a few, few, maybe an hour after they had set it up, uh, they saw something outside, like looking at it and turning its head and sort of, and then it, it left and then it came down the other hallway and it, cause they did it like in where there's a crux of two hallways meeting. And then they saw it exploring around them and tapping on the wall and, running its hands over the, you know, so, so it was Withers and a couple of his minions and he was, you know, you know, trying to figure out what's going on with this and what is this thing doing in my dungeon. And, um, and uh, they of course had to act really quickly when they realized, Oh, he's going to dispel magic. (laughs) And uh, that's how they met Withers. That's good. Um, So the other thing about that is that in that, uh, all access backstage pass, you can get to like, tunnels that connect other places. Mm-hmm. So it's your, your shortcut and your safe passage from here to there. Like, we 
found our way back up to the first level of the dungeon. We took the spiral staircase all the way down to the bottom of the dungeon mm-hmm. just to know how far down it would go. Right. Um, all this kind of stuff. And it was so exciting. Um, and everything about playing in Tomb of Annihilation has been um, a lesson for me about play styles I've really engaged with. Mm-hmm. We've talked about how I haven't played a lot of mega dungeons. Mm-hmm. Um, I've played one that uh, Rabbit ran for several years. Um, we sort of kind of began to scratch the surface of what was there, mm-hmm. but from talking to her, uh, lol, no, we really didn't. There was so much more. Uh, and then years before that, I played through a portion of Pharaoh. Okay. Um, yeah. Yep. Not the card game, the dungeon. Um, yeah. And that was a really different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it wound up feeling, I, I didn't feel the connections of different encounter rooms in the way that I think a mega dungeon needs you to. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I can't say that might not have been partially me spacing. Well, let's be real. Yeah. Um, it, like the kind how, of focus, how long ago was it? <laughs> Uh, this was 2007. Yeah, so quite. No, well. no, sorry, 2005. 2005. Sorry, I hadn't moved to North Carolina yet. So 2005. And it's just like it was not Mega Dungeons have been a huge part of my experience. Mm-hmm. And so Tomb of Annihilation as a brutal old school dungeon, uh, whether or not you accept the mega prefix for it. Uh, which has been another interesting conversation uh, <laughs> has been, has been a great experience for me because I don't have any prior experience with this room is telling you not to engage with it unless you already know what's there and know you need it. Mm-hmm. That is a big thing in tomb of annihilation. Mm-hmm. And I find it really interesting, but it also means that if you do complete that room, you feel like you've checked something off. Right that matters, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it isn't just uh, another 20 by 20 stone room. Right. Right. Um, and we, we started skipping a lot of content. Um, there's a, we, I think we had, I think we went down to level two with three, uh, three of the nine gods already in hand. Mm-hmm. So we needed to get one more. Right. And so we just found all the, tombs we needed to pick from Mm -hmm. and went for the lowest hanging fruit. Right. Right. Um, And man, some of the others look awful. They can, they can get right out of here. Yeah. I mean, that's not, that's not the wrong way to do it. Right. Like that, that's entirely what you're supposed to do is start, start reading the dungeon in terms of the PC, figuring out what, how the dungeon works and not reading as in you're reading it before you play. Uh, But you know, as a PC, you read the dungeon and you figure out, yeah, I really don't want to go into this room. And in fact, this whole floor, no, no, it's okay. I can go, if I can go down already, I'm going down. Yeah. And one of the things is the dungeon is structured to let you go down very quickly if you want. Yeah, uh, uh, to your own peril. <laughs> but yes, maybe slightly slower than thirty-two feet per second per second. Yeah, but maybe, a lot yes. slower. <laughs> <laughs> Helpful, yes. <laughs> you could do it that way if you want, uh, because this is this big open um, staircase. Where do these stairs go? They go down. Um, and so there's a couple of things that you have to pick up from the levels, but not a lot. 
Mm-hmm. And so that was that's really interesting. Um, but then there's also like plaques with clues in them mm-hmm. that you can read and interpret, and the, the, they're sometimes intentionally ambiguous, and that's great. But um, it really has sparked a lot of ideas for me in what I want to do in my own projects of writing and publishing dungeons. Uh, another amazing one that I, I want to mention is um, uh, just the other day, uh, Devin Rue posted a thieves can't uh, like uh, hobo sign language mm-hmm. that she worked out. She, she worked out like 80 glyphs and what they meant. And so the idea is that the party would find a map with these obscure like glyphs on them. Right. Unless there's a rogue in the party that already knows all this stuff. And maybe there are even glyphs that the rogue doesn't know. And that this is a chance to expand their knowledge. Like what nice. an incredibly exciting yeah. thing. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's, there is such a thing in the back of the uh, first edition Greyhawk product, right? So the Greyhawk came in two forms in first edition. It came in a folio, which was a folder with a couple of maps and a booklet. And then it came in okay. a box set a couple of years later. And in both of those, there are two or three pages in the back of, of the book that give you all these glyphs. Um, in those cases, a lot of them are arcane glyphs, but also it's just sort of simplistic, like this means danger. And this yeah. means fire, and this means you know whatever. So yeah. it's kind of, it's kind of a play on that, which is real. I've always thought that was really really cool. So I'm really uh, happy she did that because Devin Rue is awesome. Yeah, it just it feels like such an adventuring culture kind of thing, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like you can so easily imagine like people have been going down an under mountain in Forgotten Realms for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. finding a fragmentary map of a level you haven't gotten to yet, and it's all marked up with unfamiliar signs but signs that recur. Mm-hmm. Right. It's amazing. Right. You know, or, or maybe you're really worried about this one. So that's the reason to go all the way back up to the surface and research it. Right. Also great. Yep. It's, it's yep. just such great world engagement. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if the DM is willing to, to work with that, uh, it can be so fun for the players. I mean, it's so, it's such a, it's such a cool way to just make the world alive. Absolutely. So, uh, so I want to go back to something that you had said. Um, you had said that there was a some question about whether this is a mega dungeon. So, what was the? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um, this is one of the largest dungeons I've experienced in terms mm-hmm. of the space I've seen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right now, right. from talking to Rabbit, mm-hmm. her mega dungeon, you know, was much larger than what we saw. Mm-hmm. Much larger, right? And is larger than the Tomb of the Nine Gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I'm playing this game with Dan Dillon, uh, and you know, I use the term Mega Dungeon in reference to the Tomb of the Nine Gods in conversation with him, mm-hmm. and he sort of gave me a "You what, mate?" <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. because he's familiar with much larger dungeons. Mm-hmm. He talks mm-hmm. about how um, the Shackled City Adventure Path has mm-hmm. just like casually throws in a dungeon larger than the Tomb of the Nine Gods, just as an advancement step. Right, mm-hmm. and like that, based on my experience, that's mind blowing to me. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but 
it, it, it is like there's a universally accepted definition for anyone of what constitutes mm. mega, right? I mean, and, and this, this came up in Twitter. Sure, I guess uh, like uh, other friends of ours it chimed in with dungeons they had, you know, in their own experience referred to as mega, and mm. I, I think the lowest weighed in at uh, twenty rooms from friend of the show Teo Sabadia. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if each of those is a big enough set piece encounter, then call it what you want. It can be a mega dungeon, fine. Right? Yeah, it's, I mean, so you know, hard to know. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a relatively specific definition it, compared to that uh, of sure. mega dungeon, right? Like, uh, there's so I would not consider Tomb of the Nine Gods a mega dungeon. Okay, um, that doesn't mean it's not big and it's not awesome and it's not vast. Like it is all of those things, right? Uh, um, other people point out that it doesn't have competing factions, right? Well, and right. and the thing is, like the um, so the the um, the idea of of the Tomb of the Nine Gods being a mega dungeon is there because there aren't a lot of huge dungeons for fifth edition, right? And so since it's one of the biggest ones, if not the biggest one, I I, I mean, Mad I guess Mage. I guess Under Mountain, yeah, and yeah. I yeah, right. So so that right, um, but and and also by the way, Mad Mage only uses a little portion of. What's actually what, oh, oh Lord. What, what actually the tiniest under, under portion of Undermountain, right? Yes, yeah. the tiniest portion of Undermountain, right? Um, including in and, and it uses, for example, Mad Mage uses for the map for the first level, it uses actually like a tenth of the original map of the first floor of Undermountain. Yep. Right. I, so I, I have that second ed runes of Undermountain yeah, and runes yeah. of Undermountain too. Right. And you it can see where that bonkers. map they use the same map. It's just they only cut out, you know, very tiny portion. Anyway, so Th- there's some slight edits, but yes. Yeah. And, and so um so you know, I have a very, you know, there need to be competing factions. Uh, there need to be multiple entrances and exits uh, to the dungeon. Uh, okay. y- 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 there are ways to get in and out that are not necessarily um, uh, known at first, but can can be found. Uh, and so, and so, to- so technically, there are multiple entrances to Tomb of Annihilation. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them is wrong. Right. And will put you in a damn gas sure. chamber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so and and so I guess that's where I so part of it though is also size, right? Like you like ha- having nine levels uh is big, but it's not vast. Like in sort of old school parlance in my mm-hmm. mind, and, and I'm not saying my definition is the right one at all in any way, shape, or form. This is yeah. just in my thinking how how I would phrase or construct an idea of what a mega dungeon is. Yeah. Um it's so big that you could spend an entire campaign there. Like it right. is the and, campaign. And that was setting. Dan's definition. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That if the, if the campaign is not this dungeon, then it probably isn't a mega dungeon. Right. Uh, I push back against that definition because I run a campaign where like, I've got this massive dungeon that is just a steady option. Mm-hmm. If the players mm-hmm. want to go have a dungeon mm-hmm. experience or if they want to complete one of the many, many goals they can complete there, mm-hmm. but they've got all kinds of other goals they can complete outside right. the dungeon. Right. So and that's yeah. And I, like in that model of campaign, there could never be a mega dungeon, which violates reason a little bit. Right. You see what well, I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so, so for me, I guess the way I'm bringing this back around to this particular book, Iserian's Intruidian, um, is that it's talking about a, a West Marches kind of idea where you leave town and you go out into the wilderness and you you know you explore and actually that's what you do in a mega dungeon campaign too right you have a safe base this is probably a town nearby the the main entrance that you go to um and 
that's where you go. You don't rest in the dungeon necessarily, at least not for more than a you know a little bit, right? Like you you generally don't in old school. You don't rest in the dungeon, right? Because if you rest in the dungeon, you're just asking to get attacked, right? Uh, yep. So you leave and you and you go back to town where it's safe because you also don't heal when you're resting in the dungeon in old school. But anyway, mm. um, and then you go right back to that dungeon. Like that is that is the West Marches area that you are exploring and all the same components apply there are different areas there are markers that tell you what's going on in those areas that they're you know you telegraph how it's more dangerous you telegraph what kind of creatures live here you learn about the factions you work with those factions you you make deals with certain ones of them sometimes you just you know you you get you bribe them and you pay for passage so that you don't have to deal with that section of the you know there's all those things all the things you would be doing when you were going say into a a forest environment that is run by some sort of society that doesn't want other people going through you might bribe them to let you go through one time right that's the same kind of thing but it's instead in a dungeon environment underground or in a mountain somewhere and or maybe in a tower that you're going up right dungeons don't have to go down okay so like but you spend basically the whole campaign there that's the kind of old school definition ingrained in my brain right and so i think that um the sort of what you're talking about where there's a dungeon as an option and then you also have all these wilderness things and all these other goals and all that that's a living world right like you've got all those things i'm not knocking that at all right uh and that can still qualify as that dungeon can be a mega dungeon it's just not the focus of your campaign so it's not a mega dungeon campaign it's just a campaign that happens to have a mega dungeon available to it yeah 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 um, but yeah, all I really want to say about the tomb is, man, that is a really well-designed dungeon. We found so much cool stuff. I, I've already gone really deep on spoilers, mm-hmm. but <laughs> we just found more and more stuff that hooked up to other things in the dungeon. And it, because we handled this one way, we avoided a horrible thing happening to us and we felt incredibly clever for having had the right tool at the right time. Yeah. That's awesome. That's how it should be. Right. Like that's, yep. that's run well and played well. So that's, that's yep. awesome to hear. I'm glad yep. you're having a good time with that. It, it is my favorite fifth edition adventure. Yeah. It's I definitely really was feeling like, like I saw why, um, yeah. but you know, another part of the discussion was just the embarrassment of riches. That is that hardback book. Mm. Um, the, the timeline is broken. You, you sure. really shouldn't start the yeah, yeah, yeah. the death clock yep. yeah, yeah. on day one, yep. but solving well, and, that, everything else yeah. is great. Well, and there's another problem, and the problem is that you go from uh, having a wilderness hex crawl where you have to have a certain skill set that is beneficial to you, and yeah. you get used to a certain style of play that's necessary for the PCs to survive in this environment, and then all of a sudden, hey, here's a dungeon. Yep. In a ruined, in a, in, you, you find a ruined city, and you have to go around the ruined city – sort of a dungeon right it's that's sort of a dungeon you have to go to these temples and do all these things then you go into an actual dungeon and the skill sets for those two things are very different from the skill set of all the other stuff you're going around and sometimes that's very jarring so i think that's the other problem that needs to be you know so uh, you know at at, from the dm's perspective at least that should be dealt with before so, so you start is, running that, yeah. This is where I was really glad to be playing with the players that are in that game, mm-hmm. right? We we had some like, really in-depth conversations about, hey, look, our play style needs to change, mm-hmm. right? And they're, they're, they're out-of-character conversations that 
our, our characters are then going to kind of internalize, right? Uh, about, hey, look, we are not clearing every room with this thing. That is not how this works. Right. Um, and, and that kind of thing, right? Like, this has a lethality level that is way beyond anything we've seen thus far. And mm-hmm. we fought a Tyrannosaurus that spit zombies. So, <laughs> yes. We know something about lethality. Um, that is a but, great creature. <laughs> oh, oh, it's amazing. Um, this has just been an, an awesome experience of playing through a published adventure, something I've done extremely little love. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the, the way that our play style had to change has for me created interest because I am working with the right other players and DM mm-hmm. to find it interesting and to internalize it as a lesson. Right. Yep. Yep. Very nice. Very cool. And we're also very lucky that our cleric didn't get disintegrated <laughs> on level one. That was going to be depressing. Yeah. Always but good when the cleric lives. <laughs> it, it was just a matter of a past save. Yeah. That she did not have a high bonus on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's rough. Yeah. All right. So where can people find you on the internet? Well, uh, you can, for the time being, still find me on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard. I also write for tribality.com, and my personal blog is brendastoddard.com. Uh, also, my Patreon is brendastoddard. How about you, Sam? You can find me on Twitter currently at DM Samuel, or you can find me on my website at rpgmusings.com. Thank you, dear listener, for sticking through. If you listen to this whole thing, we greatly appreciate you. And even if you didn't, we still appreciate those people too. In conclusion, trans rights are human rights. Absolutely. Absolutely.